So today we begin a brand new sermon series on the book of Ephesians. And I'm really excited to go through this book together with you. And without question, Ephesians is one of the more popular books in the New Testament. I want you to listen to some of the comments that people have made throughout the centuries about this book. John Calvin actually preached from this book from May of 1558 all the way to March of 1559. Now that's 48 sermons all the way through the book of Ephesians. Don't worry, I'm not going to do 48 sermons. But this is a really powerful book. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the poet and philosopher, said this regarding Ephesians. It is one of the divinest compositions of man. C.H. Dodd, a New Testament scholar from the early 20th century, called Ephesians the crown of Paul's writings. Another commentator, Peter O'Brien, said, The letter to the Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written. Another commentator by the name of Klein Snodgrass. No, I did not make that up. That's actually his name. He said this, Pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document in history. So this short little book comprised of 155 verses in six chapters, packs a heavy punch for anyone that reads it. And for the next four months, we are going to attempt to become many experts on this book together. So if you have your Ephesians scripture journal that we've been passing out the last few weeks, go ahead and get that out. Get ready to mark it up with many, many notes. And I want to give you some statistical information about this book as we get started. There is a total of 2,429 words in the book of Ephesians with a total vocabulary of 530 words. Now, why is Paul writing this letter? Well, unlike many of his other letters, which are written for specific issues or problems that are taking places in the churches, Paul's not actually dealing with any specific problem most scholars think that this was actually a circular letter that made its way around to a number of churches in Asia Minor, but that in the title it has to Ephesus. So that's why we call it the letter to the Ephesians, even though it probably made its way around a number of churches in the first century. The two most prevailing themes in this letter are unity and love. The Greek word that Paul uses for unity in this passage is actually used nowhere else in the entire New Testament except for Ephesians. The term one, which he uses, is used 14 times in this letter. The phrases in Christ, in whom, in the Lord, or similar expressions like that are used 38 times in the book of Ephesians. Love both in its verb form and its noun form, is used a total of 34 times in all of Paul's letters, and 10 of them are found in the book of Ephesians. So almost one-third of all of Paul's occurrences about love come in this letter. So as we study and read this book together, I want the attitude of our hearts and our minds to be love and unity. That's the goal that I have for us as we march our way through these six chapters together. So today we begin with one of the most glorious passages in the whole book that Jamie just read for us. This introduction in verses 1 through 14. It could have been read and then we could have dismissed. That's how powerful of a passage it is. But today we're going to focus on 
spiritual blessings in three primary ways. Paul unpacks these spiritual blessings using the three persons of the Trinity. So we're going to focus on the spiritual blessings that come from the Father, the spiritual blessings of the Son, and the spiritual blessings of the Spirit. Spiritual blessings of the Father, spiritual blessings of the Son, and the spiritual blessings of the Spirit. Number one, the spiritual blessings of the Father. Now in verses 1 and 2, we learn that Paul is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, and he uses this phrase, grace and peace. And this is not unique to Ephesians. If you read any of Paul's letters, you will find this type of introduction in many of his letters. Grace and peace is mentioned in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. This introductory phrase that Paul uses is common in many of his letters. So we have that introductory material in verses 1 and 2. But then, beginning in verse 3, all the way through 14, did you know in the Greek text, that is one sentence. Now, in your English Bibles, if you're studying from the extra special version, which is the ESV, in verse 4, 6, 10, 12, and 14, the English versions insert punctuation marks because we as English speakers just can't fathom having a sentence that long. But in the Greek, Paul had no problem with run-on sentences. So verses 3 through verses 14 is a 202-word sentence. Now, those of you that are in school and are learning how to write, I would not use this as a test case to take back to your teachers and say, but Paul wrote this way. You're not Paul. I'm not Paul. We can't get away with 202-word sentences, but I'm not about to argue with what Paul is doing in verses 3 through 14 here. But it is one long, complex Greek sentence. And he begins by discussing the spiritual blessings that come from the Father. We're told in verse 3 that the Father blesses those in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the blessings that all believers receive, those are only possible if you're in Christ. Remember I said earlier, we find that phrase in Christ or in him used over 38 times in the book of Ephesians. But what specifically are these spiritual blessings of the Father that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 1? Well, there's two primarily. Number one is in verse 4. Paul tells us, we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, unfortunately, this concept of being chosen or what we call election often causes many believers to be anxious, to be afraid, to be fearful, even to be angry. But did you know that if you are a Baptist, and I'm just assuming because you're here this morning, you at least agree with Baptists for the most part, that if you're a Baptist this morning, you actually believe in election. How do I know that? Well, let me take you to the Baptist Faith and Message, which is our article of beliefs that kind of unite all Southern Baptist churches. Here's what it says about election. Election is the gracious purpose of God 
according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and his infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeability. And it excludes boasting and promotes humility. This comes from the Baptist faith and message verbatim election is not a puritan doctrine it is not a presbyterian doctrine it is a biblical doctrine you believe in election this morning to neglect that if you are in christ that you have been chosen by god would be to neglect the call of god in salvation upon your life and therefore to reject salvation so if you're in christ this morning You have been chosen. You have been elected. And that theme runs throughout the entire story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Abraham was chosen. Israel was chosen. The 12 disciples were chosen. Paul was chosen. And if you are in Christ this morning, you have been chosen. An election in no way, shape, or form diminishes the responsibility that man has to repent and believe in the gospel. That is core to an understanding of the gospel, repentance and faith. So if you are here today and you are not in Christ, you are still responsible for your sin. And the only way to have forgiveness and redemption in Christ is to repent of sin and trust in Christ alone. But the Bible and Ephesians explains in more detail what we have been chosen for. We're not just chosen to brag, as Baptist Faith and Message said, that this doctrine actually causes us to have great humility. Because we have to ask the question, why? would God choose someone like me? Why would God choose someone like you? Because in reality, because of our sin, none of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve election. But Paul makes it very clear here. We're chosen for a specific purpose, and that is to be holy and blameless before him in love. We aren't chosen to brag about what God has done in us, but brag about what God has done through us. In the ESV and many other translations, you'll notice that in love comes at a weird spot in your Bible. Some people put it at the end of verse 3. Some people put it at the beginning of verse 4. It's kind of dangling there on its own. So what is in love modifying? That's the question that many scholars have wrestled with. Most think that in love is modifying being holy and blameless. So in other words, love affects one's ability to be holy and blameless. The reason we want to act in a way that is holy and blameless before God is because of his great love for us and because of our great love for him. So number one, we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That is a spiritual blessing that the Father gives us. But number two, we have also been predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. 
So all that are in Christ today are adopted into God's family, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us, because of what he has accomplished on the cross. All believers are adopted into the family of faith because they have repented of their sin and they have trusted in faith. And at that point, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to all believers and we are welcomed in to the family of God. Now, why do election and adoption happen? Look at verse 6. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. If you are in Christ today, if you have been chosen, if you have been adopted in Christ, your life is for the praise of God's glorious grace. It is a sign that you should give praise and glory to God because of what he has done for you. So the blessings of the Father are being chosen before the foundation of the world and being adopted into this spiritual family. Now what about the spiritual blessings of the Son? Number two, in verses 7 through 12, we read about these spiritual blessings. Verse 7 tells us that we have redemption through his blood. Now, the word for redemption here is used 10 times in the entire New Testament, seven times by Paul, and three times in his letter to the Ephesians. So, all that are in Christ are redeemed from slavery to sin. This idea of redemption does not originate with Paul. It actually originates all the way back in the story of the Exodus. When Israel is redeemed from physical slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, God redeems them, they cross the Red Sea, and they experience literal freedom from Egypt. But in the New Testament, this redemption now takes on spiritual significance. What have all of those in Christ been redeemed from? We have been redeemed from the spiritual bondage of our sin. As we're going to learn in a few weeks when we get into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're told that because of our sin, we are dead in our trespasses. And we have no hope to be redeemed apart from what Christ has done for us. So what Paul is making very clear here under this subheading of spiritual blessings that come from the Son is that we have redemption through his blood. His shed blood on the cross, which we will celebrate in just a few moments when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It is only through the shedding of blood that we have forgiveness of sin. So we receive redemption because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And that redemption, Paul tells us, through Jesus' shed blood, not only brings forgiveness of trespasses through the riches of God's grace, which, Paul tells us, he lavished upon us. So think about this for a moment. If you're in Christ this morning, you're not getting the bare minimum of God's love or the bare minimum of God's grace, or the bare minimum of God's mercy. You are getting the full amount of God's mercy, grace, and love towards you. Paul tells us here that Jesus, through his Father, lavished it upon us. 
That makes me think of Niagara Falls. Who's been to Niagara Falls in here? Anybody? I'm probably never going to go. And number two, I'm never getting on that boat because I do not want that engine shutting down and me falling off the edge. So I'm probably not going to do Niagara Falls, but I've always been amazed at it. I mean, it's an incredible wonder of God's creation. 3,160 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. Now, that's a lot of water. But when Paul says here that God's glorious grace is lavished upon us, that makes the amount of water that flows over Niagara Falls seem like a drop of water coming out of a syringe compared to God's love, mercy, and grace towards us. Niagara Falls has nothing on God's love, mercy, and grace that he bestows on all of those that are in Christ. So number one, we have redemption through Jesus' blood. That is a spiritual blessing of the Son. Another spiritual blessing of the Son in verse 9 says this, He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ. The mystery of God's will has been set forth in Jesus. So what is God's will for your life and my life? Follow Jesus. Imitate Jesus. Heed his teachings. Model your life after him. Sometimes, I can remember growing up, middle school and high school and even college, stressing so much over what is God's will for my life. And that's a good question to ask. And we should spend time reflecting on it and contemplating on it. But many times, we overcomplicate it. God's will is that you do what his word tells you to do. That you model your life after Jesus. And to the extent that you do that, there is great freedom for you to do whatever it is that you feel like God has gifted you to do. God's will is not as complex as we often make it out to be. Trust in Christ, obey his commandments, imitate him. That is what Paul makes very clear in this passage. Number three, in Christ, we know the plan for the fullness of time, Paul tells us. Look at verse 10. It says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All things, all of creation will be united in Christ. He is the head. This idea runs throughout the entire narrative of Scripture, that God will ultimately bring justice to all the earth through the Messiah. All things are united in Christ. And then in verse 11, in Christ we have also obtained an inheritance. Now there's two trains of thought here. What is this inheritance? Is it the benefits of following Christ? Or is it that actually the inheritance is that we are God's own possession as a people? Commentators are split over this. So it either means that we are receiving a portion of what is one day going to be ours, or that we are his possession, or both of those things. So the inheritance we receive is that now we are God's possession. We are his. We belong to him. And one day when we are in heaven, we will receive the full inheritance for following after Jesus. So what is the result 
of these spiritual blessings that come from the Son. We'll look at verse 12, and you're going to see that it's eerily similar to verse 6. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory. Once again, Paul is making it clear. Any spiritual blessing that comes from the Father, any spiritual blessing that comes from the Son is ultimately for God's glory. Your life and my life is for God's glory. And then number three, the spiritual blessings that come from the Spirit. Paul concludes this passage by talking about what is the role of the Holy Spirit once we come to faith in Christ. And he gives two primary roles or blessings of the Spirit in this passage. The first blessing is that all in Christ are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now this idea of being sealed in classic Greek and Roman literature always carried with it the idea of security, identification, ownership, authentication. The seal of the Holy Spirit is what sets believers apart from non-believers. It's what sets those apart that are in Christ from those that are not in Christ. The seals that were placed on the animals and on the slaves in a first century Greco-Roman context, they were external signs to prove to the general population that that individual or that animal belonged to a specific owner. The seal that we have, if you're in Christ, is not an external seal. It is an internal seal. That internal seal, however, does affect the way that we live our lives externally. This is what we call, or what Jesus calls, the fruit that we exhibit in our lives. The Spirit's presence in your heart, the Spirit's presence in my heart, manifests itself in our good works, in the fruit that we produce. So a lack of good works and a lack of fruit should make one ask this question. Have I been sealed with the Holy Spirit? If you have the Holy Spirit, you are secure in Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are identified with Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit, He now owns you. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are authenticated in Christ. You don't need an external seal or an external tattoo that says, in Christ, for people to know that you are a Christian. Now, if you want to do that, by all means, go for it. But it's not a requirement. You have been sealed internally with the seal of the Spirit. Gordon Fee, who is one of the greatest New Testament scholars we've had, says this, The Spirit and the Spirit alone marks off the people of God as his own possession in the present age. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, you have been sealed You are his, and there is nothing you can do to not be his any longer. You are sealed with the Spirit. And then number two, Paul tells us the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession 
of it. This word for guarantee in the Greek, it means basically the initial payment or the first payment that happened in exchange for work being performed. Now, I can identify with this. We moved to New Orleans in June of 2009, so a little less than four years after Hurricane Katrina had swept through New Orleans. And the longer we lived there and we talked with people that were living there during Hurricane Katrina and experienced losing everything and experienced having to rebuild, we learned that many people in New Orleans are quite skeptical of contractors. They're quite skeptical of builders. And here's why. Shortly after Hurricane Katrina, as many people were moving back into the city, getting ready to rebuild their houses, contractors would go from home to home, and they would make these initial bids on the houses and what it would cost for them to rebuild the house. But they would always want a down payment. They would always want an initial amount paid up front to ensure that they would get paid and not get stiffed by the homeowner. But guess what happened? Lots of those contractors never showed up to any of those houses. And many, many people lost thousands and thousands of dollars by crooked, shady contractors who took an initial payment but never showed back up to finish the work. This is not what we're talking about here. The good news about this guarantee that comes from the Spirit is unlike those crooked contractors in New Orleans, this payment ensures eternal life with Christ. God will not go back on his word. Not only will he not go back on his word, he can't go back on his word because it is not even possible within his nature to do so. So when Paul says here that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, God cannot go back on his promise. He cannot do that. So if you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, if you have received the guarantee of your inheritance in Christ, there is no going back from that. If you have repented of your sin, if you have trusted in faith alone through Christ for your salvation, then nothing can take away that salvation. Your inheritance is guaranteed. And then look at verse 14. Because it ends the exact same way that verse 6 ended and verse 12 ended. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? So circle in verse 14 to the praise of his glory. And then go back up into verse 12 and circle to the praise of his glory. And then go back up to verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace. Are you getting the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us early on in this letter? Every spiritual blessing that you have or that I have, salvation in Christ, election, adoption, the seal of the Holy Spirit, the redemption through Jesus' blood, the guarantee of the Spirit, it is all there for the purpose of God's glorious grace. So it begs the question, what is your life about? God's glory. What is your job about? God's glory. What is your family about? God's glory. What is your money about? God's glory. What is your time about? 
God's glory. Every spiritual blessing that we receive in Christ is not so that we can toot our own horn, not that we can brag about how good we are or all the great things that God has accomplished through us. No, no, no. It's ultimately for God's glorious grace. The goal of life, Christian or non-Christian, is that God would receive the glory that he deserves. This is why in Genesis 1, Moses tells us we have been created in God's image. He chose humanity to be a reflection of who he is to the world, not so that people will be impressed with us, so that they will look at us and say, what an amazing God that we serve. So maybe today you've been reading as we unpack these first few verses, you see all of these spiritual blessings that we talked about, and you realize you have never received those spiritual blessings. As we begin a new year, as we start our New Year's resolutions, I would just encourage you to understand that repentance of sin and faith in Christ is the only way to receive any of the spiritual blessings that Paul speaks of here. Let's pray. God, as we get ready now to partake of the elements to celebrate the the body of your son and the blood of your son, we're just reminded of what Paul taught us in these first few verses in Ephesians, that our life is ultimately for your glory. We thank you for every blessing that we unpack today that comes from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And may we reflect and meditate on what those spiritual blessings mean for us. And if there is anyone here today who is not in Christ, I pray through your Holy Spirit, you would convict them of their sin, they would repent of their sin, and they would trust in Christ alone for salvation. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As we kick off this new year, there was no better way that we could do that than gather together for a time of communion. So I'm going to ask our deacons at this time if they would come down. And I'm going to read a passage of scripture before we pass the elements. We're going to stay with Paul. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty Concerning the body and blood of the Lord, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as our deacons get ready to pass out the elements and as we just reflect on all that Christ has done for us, this is an excellent time to continue in a time of confession. If you have any sins that you need to confess before God, this is a great time to do it. If you need to reconcile with a brother or sister in Christ, this is an excellent time to do it. So Reed's going to be playing on the piano, and our deacons are now going to pass the elements.
You may be seated. Thank you. If you would, at this time, grab your packet, peel off that top layer. Of course, we know that this is but a symbol of Christ's body. And I want us to reflect for a moment on what the death of Christ on the cross and what he endured in his body means for us. And Isaiah makes it very clear in Isaiah chapter 53 beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Let's take just a few moments silently and reflect on all that Christ's body endured for us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At this time, you can take your packet and tear back that second peel and be very careful as you peel it back. We know that the blood represents the shed blood of our Lord on the cross. And we talk about regularly how from Genesis to Revelation, this this idea of a blood sacrifice is essential to understanding our salvation. The writer of Hebrews tells us very clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sin. And it is through Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross and the shedding of his blood, that we can be reconciled to God. So spend a few moments privately thanking God for his sacrifice on the cross through the shedding of his blood. Paul goes on to say in verse 25, in the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And just as the disciples and Jesus in the upper room that night sang a hymn together, that is what we're going to do right now. We're going to stand together now and sing as a church, Nothing But the Blood.
be seated. Well, this morning we have a, a couple of couples who are coming to join. Will, Jobeth, Selah, Will, why don't you all come and stand with me? This is the Weatherfords, and they are coming to join our congregation this morning. So would you give them a hand this morning as they come? And Justin and Katie Howell, if you would come and stand as well. I've had the opportunities to get to know both of these couples in the last few months. And Justin and Katie are also coming to say this morning they would like to join First Baptist. So I'm going to bring you guys back up at the end. And everybody's going to want to hug you, kiss you, all that good stuff. All right. So y'all can be seated and come back at the end of the service. I just want to mention a couple things today before we close out in prayer. Uh, as we said in the video announcements... We're back to our Wednesday night supper, so come and join us at 5 o'clock for a supper, and then we will have our Wednesday night activities beginning at 6 o'clock. And then this weekend, we have a women's ministry event that's going to take place on Saturday morning up in our youth room. We also have an event for all men, even though it's focused on deacons. If you are a current deacon, an inactive deacon, aspire to be a deacon, don't know why we have deacons, hate deacons, no matter whatever, I want you to come this weekend to learn about the biblical reasons why deacons exist. So that'll be Friday night from about 6 to 8.30 and then Saturday morning from about 8 to 10.30. We will feed you dinner. We will feed you breakfast. We have a number of other churches in our association who are coming to participate in this event and it will be at our, in our chapel at 6 o'clock Friday night. So all men are invited to come and we have a really top-notch speaker. Matt Smethurst is an incredible author, uh, managing editor for the Gospel Coalition. He's going to do a great job in leading us uh, through this deacon workshop. So let's stand together now as we close in prayer. And then if Will and Jobeth and Justin and Katie, if y'all will come back down, people would love to introduce themselves to you after the service. Father, thank you so much for your blessings, for your goodness to us. And we look forward to 2022 and what you're going to do in the life of our church, what you're going to do in our own lives individually as we read God's word together as a church. Just this is the second day of reading through your word. I pray that it would be so meaningful to so many people. We know that every time we open your word, you speak to us. Your word tells us that. So I pray as we kick off this new year, this new journey of reading God's word together, that you would give us stamina, that you would give us patience, that you would give us endurance to do this together as a church and see how you move in our midst. We love you. We thank you. Be with us now as we go. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.